Hi, Don. Hi there. Here are we you are. ready to discuss Quiet? I'm so excited about talking about this book. By A.J. Sherrill. Yes. Hearing God Amidst the Noise is the subtitle. Yes. And this... I even love the cover of this book. It's minimalist, you know, and it has a stillness about it, just looking at it. It and... does. And it's that matte black, not yeah. shiny. Yeah. I and agree. I, I find that um, I keep this book around just visually to have it as a reminder calling to me. That stillness is there. So. And it's so small and efficient. It's just such a succinct little book. Right. The almost just just holding it reminds yeah. you what it's about. Yes. So that's the first treat you yes. find. <laughs> so how did you discover this book? I'm trying to remember. Someone gave it to me. And at first I thought it was the book Quiet. Um, I won't remember the author's name. The but it's about introverts in an extroverts world. Yes. Right. Yes. So at first I thought it was that. And I, I said, oh, I read that. And then... Um, I do remember who it was, Sandy. And oh. then she held it up and she's like, this one? It was certainly not it. And I thought, oh, I have to get that just because that's sort of one of my core things is slow. It's something that comes <laughs> naturally to you. It does. For so yes. many of us, it feels impossible. Uh-huh. And so yeah. for those of us that it's a challenge, it's, um, it's a gift of tools. It's like a little tool book right. of how to get to an authentic centering prayer um, so just a stillness, a being with God instead of talking at God. Right, kind of... which we'll get into. Yeah. yeah, yeah. he has a lot to say about that in just a few amount of words. So do you want to open in prayer? Yes, yes. There is a prayer in the book um, near the back. It's from the Oxford Book of Prayer. And I just thought it was beautiful. The language is really lovely. And it does a nice job of, of setting up this aspect of prayer. Let me climb through the barriers of sound and pass into your silence. And then, in stillness and silence, let me adore you, who are life, light, love, without beginning and without end. Amen. Amen. Right on that first page, he says, God's first language is silence. And I thought that was lovely. We so often think about God speaking, you know, let there be light. That's sort of our first recognition of God, understanding of God. And then one of my favorite scriptures in the Old Testament about God being a still, small voice, you know, not a hurricane and not, you know, the fire, but that little whisper, but even that God would be silent and just sort of take us all in is so appealing to me. It's warm and inviting. And um, he goes on to say his reason why he thinks that, which I completely disagree with. <laughs> But one of the things that's interesting to me as an introvert and someone who I always tell people, I don't do anything fast. I can't really multitask. A lot of times I feel like I'm not fit for the culture, you know, that we live in. I apologize all the time for being late, for not getting it all, for not remembering things on a list. I hate lists. I don't even want to make them. And yet, of course, I have to. And so reading this book, it feels a lot like trying to read something about how I breathe. It feels that sort of my default mode. So it'll be interesting to see if I can articulate things that just kind of feel natural to me. I know it's not that way for you. I know so. it, it has been work for me, but I feel like it's a journey I've been on for several years now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm on my way. Mm -hmm. And I have certain habits, sort of as we talked about with the Richard Rohr book, 
that I have developed in my life and I will get away from it during a busy season with a lot of doing, doing, doing. Right. And then I'll go, I feel frantic in my Mm -hmm. core and it doesn't feel good. Sometimes it masquerades as a good feeling for a little while. Yeah. And then I have to say, okay, I need to get one of the tools from the toolbox Uh um, in terms of getting quiet. Uh-huh. And and um, sort of feels like a reset for me. Sure, getting back to reality. Yeah, uh, but it it is work for me pretty much every day. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, busyness. Yeah, it goes with the territory of living in the time we live in, having children, working, all of the things that you know call to us and are our responsibilities. Wanting to lead a life of impact. Yes. One of wanting to join with God as right. he is reclaiming and restoring all things. Right. All of that. I want to be a part of that. Right. I don't want my life to be wasted. All And part of that is sort of our culture mixing in right. with my good inclinations. Uh-huh. So to kind of step back from that. Yeah. He'll, he talks immediately about, uh, he doesn't say it this way, but being versus doing. I mean, he uses those words, those two parts of ourselves, you know, all of us have them we're more inclined maybe to one or the other. And I think the doing part gets rewarded more. And even as a Christ follower, it's quite easy to get caught up in the doing, the producing, you know, where a lot of times, of course, you know, using biblical language, we say fruit, right? The fruit of something. And we think that we are the ones who make that happen. Um, But I think there's an interesting reason for using the word fruit to farm, you're not making the fruit appear. You're doing these other things, these other practices that will allow for the fruit to come, but you're not the one magically bringing the fruit. And I think that's a wonderful point, you know, in that whole back and forthness of being and doing that much of God's presence is brought to us. We don't conjure it. You know, we don't, we can certainly, and and I think this book is sort of a manual for how do you make yourself available to that? It can happen or not, but how do you make yourself open to that? And he talks about posture in here, which I think is wonderful. And in the physical sense, which immediately reminded me of yoga and you do a lot more yoga than I do. Um, So I'm sure you have something to say about. Right. Well, one of my experiences of this book was it kind of put together some of my experiences from yoga with a very clear and specific Christian Mm -hmm manifestation of centering prayer. And so I've, I'd already sort of internalized some of that for myself, mm-hmm. that there's that wonderful uh, pose in the sun salutation where you, like sometimes it's called the swan dive, where you just surrender. Uh-huh. So for me, that always is sort of an embodied surrendering to God, a letting go, allowing God, submitting. It's a submission. Uh-huh. And I guess reassuring for some people, this is one of those things that for me, when I read through it the first time, it was sort of annoying to be justifying, you know, like, but it's okay to do this. This isn't anti-Christ or, you know, this isn't non-Christian. This isn't completely secular. It's okay. Like he's trying to give people a comfort level. Like they don't have to worry that, you know, I have a close friend of mine who told me when I started doing yoga that I was going to open my body to evil spirits by doing that, you know, so a Christian, right? So so there's all kinds of thoughts out there around what it's supposed to be, you know? And so I guess, depending on what circles you're in, you may have to sort of lay that groundwork. And I found it like 
you're justifying something that is just is, you know, like you don't need to do that. But it's interesting to me that for you, it helped open a door that you were already walking through as well, but gave you that sense of like, there's a precedent here. And right. And other people know way more about this than I do. Sure. I did. I did highlight that part where he tries to unpack for people uh-huh. the difference between, say, a Buddhist mindfulness right. versus a Christian contemplation. Yep. Because I thought it was interesting. And it is different. It's okay. not exactly the same. Because as he says, rather than falling into nothing, we fall into someone. Right. And instead of the desire being de- desirelessness, right. disattachment from everything, ours is a dive into the Holy Spirit who lives and groans within the believer. As right. I'm quoting here from right. page 43. So I really love that. Uh-huh. It's interesting. What was annoying to you was to me just a clarification of something I already know in my body and right. in my spirit. But I, I found it helpful. Yeah, that is interesting. I guess because I'm reading that saying, of course, but that is my background. You know, I, I haven't had an experience of meditation without Christ. He's always there. And so these other things are just sort of layered on top of that. I wanted to say near the beginning here that I like the way he titles his chapters. So they're very simple and yet they convey a lot of meaning, even if you don't read the book, I think. So the first chapter is called Noise. The second is called Room. The third is Still. The fourth, Groans. The fifth, Dive. And the sixth, Gaze. I thought those were all great words to describe this experience, you know, and this practice or this way of being in the world, kind of what you do to remove yourself from the noise. One of the questions I had as I was rereading is, have you ever been able to find quiet amidst the noise? Do you do that? It can be any noise. The noise of home, the noise of streets, the noise of yeah. yeah, I feel like, and, and it's interesting as my kids have gotten a little older, and so they're less, it's less chaotic in that loud toddler kind of sense. Sure. But that my stamina for that has gone down now. Right. So when there is a car ride now that's crazy and everybody's fighting and there's people kicking each other's seats, I am more reactive right. than I would have been five years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I've noticed that, like, oh, wow, yeah. it's a muscle. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But one thing I did find myself going, oh, why isn't this taught in church? Hmm. Why do we have none of this that I can see uh-huh. in our discipleship, if you will, in our right. training of the community that we worship with? So one of the things for me with reading him, like our theology is not the same, I think, for me and, and this author. And I don't know a lot about him. On the back of the book, it says he lives in New York where he pastors at Trinity Grace Church. When I got to the chapter called Groans in particular, because for me, I have a Pentecostal background. And so the scripture that he starts off with is Romans 8, 26 and 27. And I'll just read it. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows What is the mind of the spirit? Because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, the paragraph below that, I'll just read it and then I'll kind of give you my background and and how I have read that scripture. So this is how the author reads it. Paul writes that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We, in quotes, 
is that part of us we most often identify, the surface self, if you will. Although that part of us is a piece of who we are, it is not our deepest, truest identity. Therefore, when we identify most with the part of ourselves Paul referred to, we never pray from the deeper rooms within. So as a Pentecostal, where part of your prayer life, to use that word, although that's a, that's a phrase that I stay away from, I, it really <laughs> bothers me, but part of your prayer life would be a prayer language, right? And speaking in tongues was part of that in my church growing up. And it can be very much like groans. So sometimes it can be loud and sometimes there would be, I'll just describe like, you know, kind of a church service. There would be all the things you would typically experience in a Protestant church, music, and there would be an offering. The pastor would preach a sermon. There would be announcements and there would always be an altar call. And that was typically the time where people would, you know, the pastor would give an invitation to come up and pray. Sometimes it would be specific, sometimes not. And you would come up and actually kneel at an altar um, corporately if you wanted to. And a lot of times that prayer time would be individual. And yet at the same time, you're all obviously aware of the people around you and people would speak out in tongues. So it's a language that is particular to the individual, not understood by anyone for the most part, although I've heard stories of people speaking in tongues in other countries and actually speaking the language that's there without having learned it. So those are some of the stories that, you know, I was brought up with. And at times it can be a mournful kind of prayer. At other times it can be a celebratory kind of prayer. You can pick up from the person's inflection a lot of times, sort of where their heart is praying. But that's exactly it. The language is not even known to them, to the person praying it. And so having had this experience, a lot of times it was prayer that came from a deeper part that wasn't articulated in words and maybe not even thought in words. But I think oftentimes for me, it was sort of a pleading with God for, you know, at the time I was much younger and there was a lot of talk about knowing God's will, you know, for your life and figuring out what that is sort of before you even take the first step, right? Very paralyzing at times for me. And a friend of mine came uh, with me who was, you know, not of the same background, but a Christ follower. And I remember afterwards her saying to me, Dawn, why does it have to be so hard? And, And it was a lot of those pleading type of prayers for me. But I also know for other people, some of those prayers unleashed a different way of life for them. Like I value that time, even though I don't pray that way much at all. I can't think of the last time I prayed that way. Just to get back to what he said about groans, I guess I agree with the surface self piece of it. And yet in my church, it would have been very much the groans of the spirit. They're not just internal, like inside. They come out. And that idea that the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf was very much a part of, it was almost concrete, like this is what's happening, you know, and and there was evidence of it. You can look around and see that and point to it and say, yes, that is what's happening there if, if you choose to believe that. And so for me, this piece of it was a part of my church and it was part of the teaching. And it can take on these all these other things, this sort of like spiritual elitism where, you know, if you're willing to participate in that, if you are, there's all kinds of language, you know, if you're baptized in the Holy Spirit and you speak in tongues, because of that, you're closer to God. And so there's that sort of tainting that experience in my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a very warm, 
Nostalgia makes it sound not powerful. From that experience, I really knew God was real and I knew he was present. And so I think that lent itself for me to contemplative prayer and a quieter kind of prayer. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to yell in church. I'm not going to, you know, cry and emote through my prayers in public. And because I didn't, people could have looked at me in that setting and said, well, then obviously you're not close to Christ. There must be something between you and me. <laughs> it was all that kind of stuff going on, too. One thing he also says in that chapter about groans, and it's also referring to Romans 8 there. Um, I'll just read a tiny bit on 42. Romans 8 beckons us into a deeper conversation with God. Rather than viewing prayer as the beginning of a new conversation, it is essential to understand prayer as an invitation to join the conversation that began long ago. That sort of reminds me of a little that. bit of the experience you're talking about, too. Yeah. That it's part of a long continuum of the church, uh, you know. Right. Ecclesia. And I think he talks there, too, about the Trinity, you know, like the conversation between God and God's self, you mm -hmm. know, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, pure relationship. And it reminds me of a, another yoga phrase, beginner's mind, mm -hmm. that we come into it to learn something that's been going on long before us and will go on long after. Mm-hmm. That we don't have to come in and start it up or do it. That it's something that is happening and we can turn toward it and experience it. And we can be a beginner each time mm -hmm. with where the conversation is going. I um, love that. Sort of that freshness of being instead of making. Uh-huh. Being open, making yourself vulnerable too kind of thing. Yeah. When my daughter started going to a Quaker school, and they would sing that song, tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free. And that little verse about turn, turn, and I know that can mean something different to a lot of people, but to me, it was that image of we're going along, we're going along, and you can just turn like this uh -huh. and be in it, mm -hmm. right? It's already happening all around you. All you have to do is take a little shift, and then you're experiencing it. Mm -hmm. The facet of yeah. the gem, you know. Yeah, just or... opening that one corner to that reality that we just, we go through life with blinders on, sort of not allowing ourselves to be aware of that conversation or that deeper pool. Mm -hmm. I love his image that he, he shares at the end. Again, these are tools for doing contemplative prayer. And one of right. them is an image that he'll start a meditation with. And he has mm -hmm. this image of a dive in the ocean. Yes. And so he goes down and all the boats on the surface are floating around. And sometimes he goes to the surface and he peeks into a boat <laughs> and then he goes, no. And he lets go and he goes back down. Right. And that vast open depth is more like what the interior of the soul is like or what being with God is like. Uh -huh. uh, and so he can begin his meditation that way and he offers it as a tool. And of course, anyone can make up their own imagery, but it is a powerful sure. way to start just to have an image that is helpful like that help to separate you from that manic list of things and to-dos right. and thoughts and conversations and all of that stuff that's floating at the surface. It can be helpful to have an image like that. Yeah. I find that there are images, I mean, certainly there are images I can draw to my consciousness, you know, while I'm praying that way. But oftentimes for me, the images are just what's happening around me. Like if I can appreciate the way the light is hitting the floor. You know, it, it tends to be kind of back to that comment about beauty, you know, like beauty really calls to me. And even driving over here today, you know, I had, it was a really busy morning and it didn't go the way I thought it would go and all of that. And, you know, I'm coming over here to talk about stillness and quiet and 
And so I had just put on like, you know, a piece of music that I really like. There's no words that often will just sort of generate that inner centeredness, you know, kind of feeling and, and presence with God. And it's a beautiful morning. Like the sun is shining. There's still a few little yellow leaves, you know, hanging on. And even the branches that are now bare, you know, the trees, the blue sky behind them makes these beautiful patterns. And because I know the road well, I'm not paying attention all that much to driving. And my mind can just be in those images. And there's like a pasture coming from my house here that I don't always go that way, but I did today. And there were cows, you know, just kind of like grazing around outside and the bales of hay that were rolled up, you know, like all laying on the, on the field. And I was so happy to be coming here to do this and talk about this and see you. And all of that for me, mixes together into that sense of when I have had this time, that centered sense of it's going to be okay. You know, that well-being, trust. So the images, I think, I look to the ones that are like immediate more than the ones that I can pull up in my mind. I have sometimes had the experience with music that way, Mm -hmm. that music can actually bring me into the moment if I allow it. Mm -hmm. There's so much music that, especially music that has a lot of lyrics that are that have a poetry. That's a different experience. Sure. But there's some very simple instrumental music that I'll listen to on my on Pandora or something like that. Uh-huh. And if you just attend to the harmony and the tone, it oh it like makes a vibration in your head like a massage. Uh-huh. It's a crazy experience where I when I first realized it was in yoga class because she'll play music at, at the uh-huh. end when everyone's resting. And the first time I experienced it was in yoga where I it, it was like a massage and a tingling all through my head because I was just letting each tone sort of reverberate in my head. Mm-hmm. And so now I can use that as a tool for meditation. Uh-huh. Sometimes at night, I'll just listen to that if I'm feeling frantic and my mind can still wander. And so then I'll just remind myself, right. let the tone exist in your head. Right. Does that sound too weird, too out there? Too no. woo-woo? No. I don't know. but And it's it's a black and white experience. I can be listening one second without really listening. Yes, right. And then the next second when I go, oh, listen, it's a little bit like that turning thing. Yes. I can be listening to a whole song. I can even be following the music. I could sing along. But I'm not really letting it exist in my head in the moment. Yeah. And then make that little shift to just experiencing each set of tones in my head, just paying attention. Right. It's just a different kind of allowing and all of a sudden, I have a very physical sensation in my head mm-hmm. of, of vibrations, and I don't even know how to explain it. Yep. It almost feels like colors. Uh-huh. So that is something that I've used as a tool, too, uh-huh. that is a little bit like having an image come upon you. Right. It just brings you into the present moment, if you allow it, if I allow it. Right. Make time for it. And even remember, even when you've had that experience, I think sometimes it's hard to practice it isn't really what I mean, but we forget sometimes that that's possible, that that's available um, when we're feeling frantic and caught up and, um, or even when we're feeling calm, we forget that there is a deeper knowing. I agree completely. Why do I have to be frantic or can't sleep before I use that tool? Right. I, you know, this year for me with preparing the house to we're selling our home and getting that ready. And the list upon list is so devastating to me. I mean, it really like pulls the rug out from under me, the constant deadlines, 
that I find really hard to manage. So just going through that for months, I remember, you know, having a conversation with some friends. We were together at like a workshop and it was about creating possibilities for yourself. I was like, this is going to kill me. I, I dread going through this. I dread what my life will be about every day where I have to go back up to the attic and look through the next box <laughs> and move the pile again over here. And, and just those things that feel to me like tiny deaths. It doesn't feel like there's any life in it. And they were asking me some kind of provocative questions. And they said, well, what would it, what would it be like if you could sort of live the life you want in the midst of that? You know, and I just had the simple thought like, well, I would be alive. I would feel alive while I'm doing this. And just expressing that sort of helped, you know, like it was one of those sort of like shift your attention to this possibility, you know, and, and walk in that path, you know, it's available to you. And that's true. But I also found that the experience of the lists coupled with driving Audrey to school every day, driving my youngest to school now, commuting, I'm up and out the door. And typically my time for contemplative prayer, I wouldn't have even called it that. It's really just my time <laughs> um, where I'm sitting and I might not even be thinking about much. I might read a little bit. I'm listening to the noises in the house, drinking my coffee. I'm not thinking about the day yet even. Like that is very common for me not to do. Now, that's part of what makes me late to everything <laughs> is that I'm not preparing the way others do. And yet I'm preparing me for it by it really literally feels like me pushing everything else away. Like it'll be there in 20 minutes. Where I'm more like an addict. I do. I mean, I am doing working on this. One of my projects is this play about addiction that's um, educational and therapeutic. But as, as I learn more about addiction and the disease and sort of some of the experiences of addicts, I when I get through a busy period... It's like, I want, I have to, I want yes. more. I can't, I don't want to slow down. I want the next little thing. I want the next project. I want the next little thing I'm going to listen to. Yeah. I want the next book that I'm going to devour. It right. gets this kind of frantic next thingness to it. And I don't want to stop. Yeah. So I guess that's probably the opposite of what you're just describing. I understand that I do. Cause that's the feeling that I had all these months, you know, of like the next thing, the next thing, the next thing you get in that mode. And the busyness is sort of a buzz. You know, it is that like reward, you know, uh, that sense of accomplishment, that sense of other people acknowledging what you've done and, you know, all those things. So I completely understand how that becomes a comfortable way of living. For me, I have to decide to build this into my, it has to be a discipline uh -huh. or it just won't happen. Mm -hmm. And I've gone through a phase where I haven't been very disciplined about it. I had tried last spring, because I'm about to embark on a project with a friend exploring the artistic process through mindfulness and meditation. Okay. So of course, I'll be approaching it with a more Christian perspective. But I did build into my week a few times a week, some meditation for a while. I abandoned it when I got busy and got on that track again. Uh -huh. So I have learned I really, really it has to go on the calendar or it will not be part of my sure. life. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is very helpful about this little book is it has some very practical steps that I could put on my calendar. Yeah. You know, and he even says, set your timer for 12 minutes. Right. And those kind of little helpers, I, someone like me, I really need that yeah. to be able to experience what, what that investment would be like Yeah. to get to a deeper layer of prayer. Mm -hmm. 
and let go of the constant need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, setting the timer lets you know it's not all or nothing. Each little step does create space. I have a family member who would often help me when the kids were little, babysitting or, you know, you know, come over to give me some time. And each time, you know, of course I would thank her and everything. And each time she would say, well, I hope you got something done. I'm not kidding, like 100% of the time. Well, I just want to make sure you're able to get things done. And that was so jarring to me because oftentimes I was like going and getting in my car and just driving around for an hour. I was not running errands or, or, you know, shopping or, I mean, I just was like driving around with coffee or sitting in a parking lot somewhere reading a book. I really wasn't getting anything done. And it just was always so interesting to me to come home and, well, I hope you got some things done. I would just say, yeah, thank you. (laughs) And it just stuck to me at those two sort of ways of being in the world, those two kind of mindsets that we can get really, you know, down the road with that and to the point where it's, it's kind of all there is. It's deep. It's deep in our culture. I, have I ever told you about my grocery store revelation? (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, I am somebody that I've changed, but let's say 10 years ago, I would go to the grocery store. I would expect myself to be efficient to not if I didn't usually have a list, but I expected myself to know what I needed and to get it in a sort of reasonably efficient manner and then go to the checkout. But once you're in the store with little kids, you can like wander up and down and around in circles. And even when I had someone helping me, this is what reminded me of it. I would have a babysitter Wednesday afternoons, usually when they were little babies. And Mm -hmm. the one time I could plan dentist appointments and things like that, it was great. But I would go in the grocery store by myself and it would feel like a vacation. But then I would berate myself for being inefficient. And one day I'm like, Tanya, it's okay if you just wander in circles in the grocery store. It's okay to be inefficient in here. Yes. It's all right. So that's why that's the way you do it now. Right. That's the way it is in the grocery store. (laughs) You go to this side and you get a piece of celery and you go to that side and you get a yogurt. And then you stand in the dog food aisle just staring (laughs) at all the choices for five minutes. And then you go back and you get some lettuce. That's okay. That's what it looks like now to go to the grocery store. And it was just this huge weight off my shoulders. And it's better now because I'm just in a slightly different season. But I still sometimes will have to just, I'll catch myself. Give yourself permission. I'll catch myself berating myself for not being efficient, not just in the grocery store. Yeah. But other times too, like first thing in the morning. Like this is how it is in the morning now. Yeah. I might walk back and forth a little bit and it might not make sense if someone was watching. Right, right. It's okay. I do that Um, all the time. All the time. And I'll never forget uh, my friend Joy telling me the first time she told me, God is slow, right? She just said it, like made the statement, like claimed it, like, you know, put the stake in the ground. God is slow, which you can see all over the place when you look, right? And I've taken that one phrase and sort of extrapolated it into, you know what? God is not efficient either. He doesn't value efficiency. (laughs) At least that's not my experience of him. It's thankfully not one of the fruits of the spirit. Efficiency is not, you know, neither is promptness. He's not wasteful either. And yet his timeline is completely different from ours. And what will produce what's needed in our lives is often counterintuitive. This is a perfect example. Because, you know, you can make the argument that, well, if you slow down, you know, long enough, it will help you be more productive in the end. You know, like there are certainly people who approach that um, meditation or yoga or any self-care. Yes, exactly. As if that's the goal. It doesn't have to be the goal. 
I love that story. That's a great story. That reminds me of this one that I wanted to read on 60. Prayer is not one of the many functions in your relationship with God. Prayer is your relationship with God. And for many, this is a challenging idea. We much prefer being devoted churchgoers, active missionaries, and astute theologians. The reason for this preference is that these endeavors tap deeply into our egos, which take pride in producing as the essence rather than the fruit of our spirituality. Those activities align with our habitual modes of controlling our performance to achieve an objective. We are far more comfortable with striving. Mm. That just the being is, can be the goal. Yeah. Doesn't even what we we're talking about before that, that fruit you're trying, you're hoping that you're living a life that will produce fruit and right. that you're doing those things that are the tending of the garden. Right. But still even talking about that way, the fruit is sort of the goal. Mm-hmm. So what is it if yeah. you like, if we let go of all of that of all and of just it. trust that there may be fruit, it's not in our control at all. Right. That is, it's kind of a big leap to surrender. Right. Yeah. And yet when you are trusting the source of all of it, you know, that's sort of the piece for me that allows me to surrender um, is that I don't have to hold it because it's not up to me. And there is something bigger than me carrying all of it. So that part of it for me makes it easy, like a trust fall, you know, kind of, of course, he's, of course, I'm going to fall into someone, you know, that is sort of my baseline understanding of the world. So what a gift, <laughs> right? I guess so. You have a lot to teach us. Well, I don't know if I can. That's the odd thing about it. Like, right. It's how do you gift. teach someone to walk? Well, you know, and... I've said that about faith before because it, it says in the scriptures, you know, faith is a gift. Mm-hmm. And that can be an interesting thing to sort of talk about. What does that mean? Right. But in, in trust is a gift, too. So I think yeah. what you're talking about is sort of just an all-encompassing trust at the bottom of it all for you. Yes. And that's a gift. Yeah. It's certainly not what I would come up with as a solution, you know, left to myself. And yet when I put it on, super comfortable because <laughs> I've lived it. I've tried it. I've, I've had to, you know, in the darkest of times, um, that sense of presence is what holds me. I don't know if this is relevant, but it it came to mind a couple of times, you know, thinking about today in this recording, I was going through a really, really horrible time. Like I thought everything was going to fall apart, you know, like just in that moment. And my husband had a heart attack. He was 44. He was put into a, a coma, a drug induced coma to preserve organ function. Like it was that bad. You know, doctors were telling me the terrible stories, uh, you know, neurologists. Oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> the people on the planet that tell you everything's going to fall apart. I was with some friends. They had dropped me off at my house. And it was dark. It was nighttime. It was dark. My kids, somebody was with my kids. I had put them to bed. It was late. And I live sort of in a rural, you know, community. And, and um, <laughs> there are woods and whatnot. And so, like, being outside at night by myself is not something I typically would do. And the back door was locked. And I had to walk kind of around through the woods to get around the house to the front door, which obviously is not terrible. You know, it's it's not dangerous, really. And yet, in that moment, a, a moment where I typically would be, like, kind of nervous, like, are there going to be coyotes out here? Are there going to, you know, like, what am I going to bump into? And um, I remember thinking, I'm not afraid of anything. Like that sentence, I am not afraid of anything because the darkest, worst thing had happened. And here I was, I was still here. 
And that is what trust looks like, you know, to me. The, Brennan Manning has this amazing book called Ruthless Trust, and that is the word for it. It's ruthless because each piece that kind of gets peeled away, you think, I can't, I can't, you know, you're clinging. But a miracle did happen, and, and he's still here, and he can speak, and he can, you know, he's physically well, my husband. But that was one of those times where I just, you've got to carry me. You've got to hold me and had let it go to the point where I was able to, to lean into the place where I thought, I'm fearless. And I don't have that feeling all the time. But that was one specific time where that's exactly what it was. Is there anything else we want to say before we wrap up? Should we just introduce what our next book will be? Be sure. Since this season is about finding our voice, which I think is such a wonderful thread through everything. So Jen Hatmaker is somebody that you write. I know. She's hilarious, first of all, and forceful. Fierce. Yeah. Like forceful as heck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and real. Very open about wrestling through some things, you know, and and waking up to some things. I think her voice is exceptional in the world. She certainly has jarred some things in me that, and made me rethink some things. So the book is called Interrupted, When Jesus Wrecks Your Comfortable Christianity. And that's what we'll do next. Yes. Do we have a scripture reading that we've decided that we're going to pair with this yet? With Quiet? Yeah. I was thinking maybe some of the Psalms okay. might work with Quiet. Because, well, they're, you know, in the beginning. They're talks, meditations. Right. Um, and they can be sung or they can be read, of course. I was thinking about uh, what he talks about in the beginning, the first practice of Lectio Divina. And I find whenever I've done that, it's typically a psalm that I'll choose where you're, you're reading the scripture um, several times and kind of letting each word hit you differently, you know, kind mm. of um, emphasizing each word and spending time with it. And it's the practice that I think the scripture starts to read you, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense letting whatever impressions come to mind come, you know, writing some of those things down. It is a personal experience with scripture, which I think can be powerful. It can also feel hokey. I have to say Mm. I've had that experience too. And you know what, you know how, like if you, you can say something one way and say the exact same thing, a different way. And it, it's worlds apart. Right. So it's what makes it alive. Right. And that the scriptures can hold that and more. Absolutely. Is so thrilling. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we'll do a few psalms. That there'll be a link to that on our website, mm-hmm. giftgirls.blog. You can also email us with any thoughts you have about this conversation or this book at giftgirlsfaith at gmail. And with that, there is a little he offers a centering prayer. It's it's one that's used in many denominations and it's often sung. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna sing it. I love but it. it's also a breath prayer. So you can breathe in on the first phrase, out on the second, in on the second. Anyway, you get the idea. (laughs) We're not good with numbers. You can breathe. (laughs) Breathe in, breathe out. So this might be familiar to a lot of people in their church experience. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I love it. I've never... That no, no. I've always sung it in our former church, uh-huh. but that he's <laughs> suggesting that you inhale on Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Exhale. Have mercy on me. Inhale. A sinner. 
And so that he's he's offering it as a meditation practice. Mm-hmm. But and we offer all this up. Yep. Go give it a try. All right. Thanks, Don. Thank you.